This is Sam of Historian Splaining, a historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and other platforms. If you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link should be in the description. And if you sign up at any level, even if it's just a dollar, you can hear my patron-only materials, including my upcoming next Myth of the Month. But right now, I'd like to go to a topic that several people have asked about, which is China. And I want to do a first discussion of the origins of China and Chinese civilization. Basically, how it arose, how it developed and grew from the prehistoric age through the first three royal dynasties and up to the unification of the Chinese empire under the first emperor. And like when I discussed India, I want to start off first by just describing the geography of the country, which is so fundamental to understanding how life has unfolded in China. And in some respects, the geography of China you can see as a bit simpler than that of India. So I think we can start by assembling a sort of overall view from space of the landscape of China and piece it together by basically following the traditional four elements of classical philosophy, earth, water, air, and fire. And of course, those are not the basic elements of ancient Chinese philosophy. We'll get to that later. But just as an easy rubric, say we start with earth. When we look at the actual land of China, it follows a fairly simple pattern, sloping downward from west to east going from the Himalayan mountains, which are the highest mountain range on Earth, and the nearby high plateaus, down through narrow passes, then somewhat wider river valleys, and then finally onto wide open plains, running across the eastern shield of East Asia and down to the ocean and specifically to three seas, the Yellow Sea, the East China Sea, and the South China Sea, connected to the Pacific Ocean. So you can see this fairly straightforward single dimension from the high mountains sloping down bit by bit to the ocean. Then as for water, well, the Himalayas, the name means abode of snow. And every year, enormous masses of meltwater pour down from those high mountains and run their way through streams and rivers and eventually converge into three large river systems, each of which empties separately into the ocean. The northernmost of the three great rivers is the Yellow, or Huanghe River, which passes through hundreds of miles of those flat plains in northern China. The other two, which are the Yangtze and the Pearl River, pass through longer courses of mountains and narrow valleys, but then eventually reach floodplains and deltas when they get to the ocean. And all of these river systems, the Yellow, the Yangtze, and the Pearl River system, all of them frequently flood and often fan out uncontained across the plains. And in some instances, when the floods are especially powerful, they even change course. And the Yellow River in particular, which runs through those hundreds of miles of flat plains, has actually changed its path multiple times in history. Then as for air, 
the systems of winds in China follow basically a monsoon pattern, shifting in different directions over the course of the year. But it is less predictable and regular of a pattern than one sees in India. There generally are warm, wet winds blowing from the south northward through the summer, which bring frequent rain, but more irregular, more often coming in unpredictable big storms and hence causing, again, more flooding. And then in winter, there tend to be very cold, dry winds that blow down from the deserts and steppes of Central Asia and Siberia. And these cause very bitter, deeply cold winters with deep freezes. So these north winds that frequently blow down through China and especially over those flat eastern plains, these winds cause a great deal of hardship, but they also have a silver lining. They tend to blow and carry down fine dust from the steppes. And the accumulation of this fine dust creates thick layers of so-called lus soil, which is very light, workable, and mineral-rich. And when the loose soil is combined with the river waters and the silt that they carry from the mountains, it makes for highly fertile land that can be enormously productive. So overall, the implications of this combination of earth, water, and wind is great fertility, which can yield enormous food production. But in order to do so, most of the land must be irrigated because there is not regular dependable rainfall and there can be very long droughts. And in addition to that, in order for towns or villages to survive, the floodwaters of the great rivers have to be contained and channeled. And all of this requires tremendous organization and the deployment of labor forces, as well as the collection and protection of large stores of food in order to feed these workers on the hydraulic systems and in order to prepare against harsh winters, floods, and other disasters. And hence, China can be seen as a foremost example of what the scholar Wittfogel, whom I've mentioned before in my conversation with Jeff Schulenberger, argued for such a thing as, quote, hydraulic civilization. The notion that in Asia, societies tend to grow and flourish from fertility, but they require irrigation because of the irregular and uncertain rainfall, and hence they tend to be highly organized and bureaucratic societies. But all of this only develops in China, of course, after several thousand years of human habitation and the development of societies before we see a massive populous civilization based on irrigation. So really, to begin the story of China and how this society came about, we have to go back and consider the other elements in the Chinese system, which in their philosophy include fire, wood, and metal. So as for fire, fire came in with the earliest humans, and it seems that China was a very early country to be colonized by early hominins, the ancestors and long-extinct relatives of Homo sapiens. So these hominins are human-like creatures of the genus Homo, left Africa, beginning with the Homo erectus species. And China and Southeast Asia, these may have been among the first places that Homo erectus migrated and settled outside of Africa. 
instances of fossil teeth and simple stone tools have been found in several caves around China, and they've been dated to about 2 million to 1.5 million years ago. These Homo erectus early colonists most likely did use fire. Traces of ash have tended to also be found around these fossilized tools and remains, but it is not entirely certain. It also seems that some populations of Homo erectus actually evolved into distinct new local species within China. For instance, in the 1960s, the skull of an early human was found that had long limbs, more like Homo sapiens, and that had a sort of transitional-looking face, a little more similar to what we expect to see in modern humans. And this skull was found in a cave near the Wei River in the uplands of western China, and it was found near the remains of many big animals, such as tigers, elephants, boars, and deer. So it makes sense that this form of early human was specialized in hunting these large animals, which it took into the caves in order to butcher and eat. And this skull has been dated to around 600,000 years ago, so earlier than we believe Homo sapiens evolved back in Africa. And some have argued that the facial structure of this species is like modern Chinese people. But this is a very contentious argument, and the connection has not been genetically confirmed. But it has raised speculation or the possibility that maybe East Asian people today have some admixture of ancestry from these distinct East Asian species, much like Europeans have some fraction of Neanderthal ancestry. Now, regardless of that notion, certainly we know that most Chinese today are primarily descended from the next wave of humans that came in, which were Homo sapiens. But when and how they first came is very unclear. There have been finds in other caves of human and animal teeth, as well as one jawbone and lumps of charcoal. So it's very clear that these early Homo sapiens definitely brought the use of fire with them. But again, the date is unclear. It seems possible that maybe they first migrated in about 50,000 years ago. And then after that, there's an enormous gap of tens of thousands of years when we really don't know what was going on or what people were doing, basically during the last ice age in China. But traces of human activity start to appear again much later, after the end of the Ice Age, from about the time when farming started in the Neolithic era. And this produced new sorts of objects and artifacts that we can find today. Societies started to gather and collect large stores of food to make pottery and to make stone harvesting tools, especially for harvesting grain like rice. And they also might have started very soon after that to domesticate wild rice into early forms of domesticated rice. And it seems this started probably about 9000 BC in northern China and then gradually spread south into the hillier and more mountainous areas around the Yangtze River. The earliest known large village-based society in China has been called the Yangshao culture and it was first discovered in the 1920s and it seems that it started around 5000 BC and then large towns began to form around 3000 BC mainly in the upper Yellow River and Wei River valleys. 
So in what's now thought of as the northwestern corner of the core area of China. And most early farming in China, it seems, took place in that area, in the high river valleys and the uplands in the northwest. And that's probably because the lower plains, as we think of them to the east, were at this time very wet. The climate was different. They were extremely wet, swampy, and marshy, and studded with large lakes. So that's the sort of environment that might have been good for people to survive by fishing and hunting animals, but not for farming. And so really the first urban societies based on farming were in those western uplands. And it seems that in the Yangshao period, the main large village was at a site called Panbo, and it was based on farming mainly of millet by slash-and-burn agriculture methods. And we don't know for certain if millet was the first crop to be domesticated, if it was before or after rice, but certainly it's clear that this area of the upper Yellow and Yangtze, Yangtze River valleys were an area of the independent invention of agriculture. In other words, it's one of these eight or nine sites around the world where people separately invented plant domestication and farming. The Yangshao society also raised animals, mainly pigs, and they hunted and gathered as well to make a varied diet. They built mainly using rammed earth and bricks, which have continued for thousands of years after to be the main common building materials in China. They also set up seasonal temporary structures, probably using wood, especially bamboo. And we know that they practiced very sophisticated cooking techniques because they made tripod pottery vessels that could be placed over fires or coals, and they created stacking perforated vessels for steaming foods. So a lot of the basic cooking methods we still think of were developed in this ancient prehistoric time. The next society that developed that competed with the Yangshao culture was the Longshan culture, which sprang up, it seems, on the coast, specifically on the Shandong Peninsula on the East China Sea. And this culture was discovered in the 1930s. It seems that it started right around 3000 BC, and it may have been possible for villages and towns to begin springing up in that eastern area on the coast because the climate was changing and becoming more dry. And so arable grasslands were opening up rather than just swamps and marshes. They also farmed millet, but also a lot of rice and then wheat. By 2000 BC, they were making noodles. And one actual surviving ancient noodle has been found at the site of a Longshan house that was destroyed by an earthquake. They also made simple markings on bone or bamboo surfaces laid out in rows which have not been deciphered, but they may have been an early form of writing or a forerunner of writing. They are known today specifically for the very fine, polished black pottery that they made, which can even appear modern and, and very finely finished. And that style of black pottery, it seems, then spread to the west and the south, suggesting a developing sort of cultural dominance or hegemony with the Longshan lifestyle being well adapted to the plains as they became more dry and then spreading out and colonizing. A major Longshan site is the town of Daozi, 
which is in northwestern China. So it seems that this culture had now spread and basically superseded the older Yangshao culture. It's in northwestern China, built in the 2000s BC, clearly in the Longshan style. And it had a rich, powerful elite that collected jade objects and magnificent grave goods. So it was clearly a stratified society. And the town also has the remains, the foundations of an astronomical observatory, which was discovered in 2003, and which has arrow slits for tracking the movements of the sun and moon through the year, and probably was constructed in order to track a combined solar and lunar calendar, a way of sort of reconciling and aligning the movements of and the cycles of the sun and the moon. And it, this was most likely the rudiment of this combined solar and lunar calendar that was used for centuries later, including by the early royal dynasties of China. So we've talked about earth, water, wind, fire. We mentioned wood. Now the last one is metal. The Longshan society began metalworking, especially in copper. And the biggest early copper object that's been found from that era is a copper bell that was cast in a clay mold and was also found at Daoxi. Around 2000 BC, the Longshan in turn were eclipsed by a new rising power, which arose slightly to the south in basically the west central uplands. And the remains of this culture were discovered and gathered in the 1950s. And the culture of this era has its own distinct pottery styles, and it also used wheeled vehicles, which was an important innovation. And this culture has been called by archaeologists the Erlido culture because the major center, the biggest site that's been found, is at a village called Erlido. And this ancient site has enormous buildings, a complex of galleries, surrounded by a, a tremendous rectangular defensive wall. And it's been supposed that this may be a palace complex. The people of the Erlido culture also made jade jewels and magnificent cast bronze vessels of different sizes. And bronze, it seems, was mastered very quickly in this time period, probably due to a lot of skill and experience with ceramics, including with ceramic kilns. And this sort of uh, manipulation of intense heat probably made it easy for people to learn bronze smelting and bronze casting. And the rise to power of what seems to have been some sort of new polity, maybe a kingdom, was probably facilitated by this use of bronze working, although they only made very few bronze weapons, but they made bronze tools and parts for probably for vehicles. And it seems that this early Dou culture dominated the region of central, what's now central China, for about 400 years. And the discovery and excavation of these early Dou sites has given rise to a big ongoing debate. Why is that? Well, there are ancient texts that were compiled at different times in ancient China, starting around 1000 BC, which collected and retold many traditional stories about the early formation of the Kingdom of China and of its first rulers. So the question has been raised, firstly, can the Erlido culture, with its big palace, its road system, its wheeled vehicles, can it be identified with one of the ancient ruling houses that is described in those chronicles. In other words, can written accounts and archaeology be made to line up? 
Well, let's turn then to some of these early surviving documents from ancient China that tell us about the earliest ruling dynasties of the kingdom. So there are several sources that one can look at that give some sort of information or claims or traditions about very, very early China in the distant mists of the past. So for one thing, there are many inscriptions on bronze vessels and other bronze ritual objects, which might give names, events, places, but not much sustained narrative. Then there are four important books that were copied and passed down through the centuries. The oldest one, it seems, is the I Ching, or Book of Changes, which is a collection of divinations and prophecies collected from the early ruling dynasties. The next after that is the Shi Jing, or Book of Odes, which is a collection of very old poetry, songs, and aphorisms that it seems were collected between about the 11th century and the 7th century BC, and hence it's the oldest book of poetry in the world. Then there is the Shu Jing, which can be called the Book of History or Book of Documents. And this is an ancient collection of mainly speeches and addresses delivered by rulers and statesmen that were supposedly recorded and collected through the years. And then finally, there is the first actual narrative history of early China, which was written by a man named Su Ma Qian, who was the court astrologer to emperors of the Han dynasty, and who around 100 BC or so wrote this book, the Shi Jie, or simply Chronicle, or it's sometimes translated as Records of the Grand Historian. So if one looks at the different stories that appear in these different early books and documents, they tell, for one thing, of the supposed first emperor who ruled over China, whom they call Huangde, or the Yellow Emperor. And the Yellow Emperor is first mentioned in chronicles and inscriptions from around the 500s BC. In other words, he doesn't appear in the very earliest surviving documents, and hence, Scholars generally think that this yellow emperor is purely legendary and that the story about him only developed later. Nonetheless, he forms part of an important founding myth. He's said to be the first mortal ruler of the kingdom. He defeated a set of hostile barbarian tribes called the Miao. He created various inventions such as the compass and coined money. And his chief minister reportedly invented written signs. And one of these early accounts attributes enormous importance to this invention of writing and says, quote, All spirits cried in agony as the innermost secrets of nature were thus revealed. So this is still, these, these chronicles of these early emperors still speak of sort of direct interaction between gods and spirits and these human rulers. The Yellow Emperor was then reportedly succeeded by four other good emperors, each of which was elected for his virtue. And these later emperors introduced more sophisticated innovations, such as astronomy and the calendar. But the reign of the last good emperor, Shun, was plagued by devastating floods. And so Shun called in a man named Yu, or sometimes he's called Yu the Great Engineer and called upon him to go out and build canals, dikes, and levees in order to manage the floodwaters. And Yu spent 13 years mastering the waters. 
So out of gratitude, Shun then designated Yu, the engineer, to be his own successor. And when he died, Yu succeeded to the throne and ruled for a time. And then he broke with tradition in that he designated his own son then to be his successor. Thus, he founded an ongoing hereditary dynasty, which in the Chronicles is called the Xia dynasty. So if we look at these stories of the Xia, they actually go back earlier. They appear in earlier chronicles than the stories about the Yellow Emperor. And so it's reasonable to suppose there's a greater possibility that these have some historical fact to them. The Xia dynasty is referred to as early as about 1000 BC, and the rulers were referred to by a title or a pictographic character that is commonly translated as king, basically hereditary ruler. And the Xia ruled from various capitals around the northwest of China in the upper Yellow and Wei River valleys, the same basic area as most of the excavated sites of the Erlido culture. And furthermore, the estimated time period, if you trace back from the earliest dated records to these stories of the Xia, it seems that they must have ruled in the early 2nd millennium BC. And that also basically lines up with the estimated time period of these Erlido sites. And so naturally, this leads to a lot of speculation. Is the Erlido culture the same as the Xia dynasty? Or should we identify these legendary kings in these early chronicles as the rulers of that particular society? And hence, is there also real history contained in legendary form in these old chronicles? Well, that is still much debated, but Regardless, based on archaeology, it seems that the Erlido culture fell and the major towns were abandoned around 1530 BC. And this also matches up with the date of the Chronicles that say that the last Xia emperor was overthrown in 1554 BC. And the Xia reportedly were overthrown by the first ruler of a new dynasty called the Shang. And the Xiang is much more consistently recorded and attested, both in documents and in archaeology. So the early chronicles say that this new dynasty emerged from a kingdom to the east in the lowlands. And this kingdom was known for trade. And in fact, the word Shang has often been used in many languages in China to mean merchant. And this Shang kingdom grew prosperous based it seems probably on wet agriculture and irrigation, but it was plagued by floods, and hence, as the capital grew, it was continually forced to move many times westward and to higher and higher ground. And at one point, the leader of the Shang kingdom went on a trade mission to another highland kingdom to the west, and there he was murdered. So in retaliation, the Shang conquered this hostile kingdom. And hence, its westward expansion began. And as the Shang Kingdom expanded, we can infer that they probably took advantage of bronze weaponry, which was relatively new. So the Shang capital kept moving westward until they came into a confrontation with the Xia Kingdom. And the last Xia ruler was named Jie, 
and he was described in the Chronicles as very cruel and tyrannical. He reportedly used frequent torture and capital punishment, especially for affronts or disrespect towards the crown. He also was exceptionally extravagant. He's described as hanging animal carcasses from trees and filling up lakes with wines so large that one could float boats on them. And it's possible that these descriptions might be references to sort of animal sacrifice and fertility festivals that had been practiced in the Shia dynasty that then went out of favor. So this last Shia ruler, Jia, was easily and quickly overthrown by the Shang king named Tang. And Tang reportedly was reluctant to take the throne, having no claim. But his chief minister persuaded him, saying to him, the people need a ruler to keep order, and that Tang has greater virtue than the ruler he overthrew, and so the people would welcome him. And this story then sets a precedent that force of arms and virtue together could provide legitimacy to a new ruler, even a usurper of the throne. So subsequent Shang rulers then moved the capital around among various different cities up and down the Yellow River Valley. But they finally settled upon a city called Yi on the Huan River, close to the present-day city of Anyang. And this is more or less in the middle of the Yellow River Valley, at the very edge of the uplands. And so it was, you could say, a sort of central location for them, where they could face in both directions, to the eastern plains and the western uplands. And during the early Shang era, several other cities also were built along the Yellow River, most of them with large city walls, multiple workshops, and large tombs enriched with bronze and jade objects. And it's unclear how far the Shang rulers' political control really extended, but it is clear that they dominated most of North China, and they had an extensive trade network reaching out even farther. For example, alcoholic beverages were being fermented and distilled from fruits in the far north to supply the Shang capital at Anyang, and copper for bronze making was largely mined from the mountains to the south along the Yangtze River. And these practices and skills in bronze casting seem to have spread out beyond the Shang domains to the east, the west, and the south. And for instance, in the 1980s, archaeologists discovered remains of a large city in what's now Sichuan, in an upland basin in the southwestern area of China, at a site, specifically at a site called Sanxingdui. And this massive archaeological find included two sacrificial pits that contained hundreds of bronze and jade objects, which were distinctly different from the ones found at Anyang in the Shang Kingdom. What sets them apart, for one thing, is that they include many human figures, which one really does not see hardly at all in Shang art. So they include human figures such as bronze heads, many of them faced with gold masks, and an entire life-sized human statue, which is highly unusual in ancient Chinese art from this early. But all of them are in a very distorted and surreal style, almost like cubism, with enormous or protruding eyes. And in addition to that, there are many eye-shaped objects and talismans, which suggest that the people of Sun Xingdui might have practiced a sort of eye worship or seen a divine significance to the eyes. There have also been other finds of bronze artwork in other outlying areas, probably dating from about the 1100s and 1200s BC. 
And this suggests existence of many distinct and probably autonomous societies or kingdoms all around the edges of the Shang kingdom. And hence, it should not be surprising that around this time, probably during the Shang dynasty, the term emerged of the so-called Middle Kingdom. This is how people called the core area of China, or the Shang domain, the Middle Kingdom. And that is because it was seen as the center of all civilization. Metalworking, writing, engineering, all of them emanated, in their view, from the Shang Kingdom. And all other societies faced it from all directions, north, east, west, and south. And that's why they called it the Middle Kingdom. It's not cosmological. It's not like Middle Earth between the heavens and the underworld. But it is the center of their world. And this was especially true for them because still at this point, China had no contact with any other known civilizations. They were in a sort of splendid isolation here in East Asia. And as far as they knew, they were the one and only heart of civilization. So the Shang government divided its territory up into four main provinces, each of which had its own regional leader called an archer lord. And beyond this are various borderland chiefdoms and confederations, generally called Fang. And often the kings of Shang went to war in order to pacify or bring to heel these sort of outlying fringe polities. But to us today, the Shang dynasty is mostly known for its elaborate ritual practices. So the Shang practiced ancestor worship. They produced elaborate grave goods and offerings for the deceased ancestors. The ancestors were believed to join with the spirits of natural forces, such as the sun, the moon, and the mountains. They practiced invocation and divination from the ancestral spirits. And it seems there were special castes of priests as well as the kings that acted as intermediaries to the most important spirits. And they would go into ecstasy states, commune with these spirits, most often of ancestors, but the really major cosmic spirits like mountains were reserved for the kings as sort of the highest priests. And most significantly for us, they practiced divination by animal bones so scapulas or shoulder bones taken from animals as well as turtle shells were used as oracle bones. So they would be heated and scorched until they cracked and then those crack patterns would be read for their meanings. So this type of divination is referred to in some ancient documents like the I Ching. But nonetheless for centuries scholars heavily doubted whether this really took place or was important until specimens began to be found by scholars beginning in 1899. And at that point, a professor and antiquarian at the University of Beijing was very ill, and he sent out his assistant to local healers and drugstores to bring him healing herbs or objects. And among those that the assistant brought back were some cracked animal bones with inscriptions in some sort of very ancient, unreadable text. And archaeologists quickly realized the great significance of these bones, that they might in fact be confirmation of the practices described in the I Ching. And they traced the origins of these bones back to Anyang, near where the Shang capital was. And they then began excavating at Anyang in the 1920s and 30s, until the efforts were cut off by the Japanese invasion and the outbreak of war in 1937. 
But nonetheless, they uncovered a large palace complex and various royal cemeteries around it, as well as large temples and sacrificial pits, all of which are aligned north-south. The pits were found to contain the remains of about 30,000 human beings who had been sacrificed to these deities and ancestors. And they also found that most of the valuable objects associated with these burial pits had already been looted many centuries earlier. So there were very few bronzes and things like that to be found. But there were two significant exceptions. One is the tomb of Lady Howe, who was a royal consort, whose tomb had been largely built over by the foundations of a temple and had been more protected from looting. And the tomb is found to have elaborate decorated bronze vessels, including the largest bronze cauldron ever found in the world. And these bronzes, it seems, must have been made by an enormous, highly productive workshop with a production line of over a thousand people. So this was a huge operation supported by all the resources of the kingdom. And then the second exception is that they did find caches of thousands of these bones with divinatory inscriptions. Some of them also, as I said, were on turtle shells. And this practice, it seems, does go back all the way to Longshan times, to prehistoric times, where these sorts of cracked turtle shells have been found. But others are on animal shoulder blades or scapulae. And it seems that the process is that a diviner would inscribe a question about future events, such as weather, will there be rain, or about fortunes in a war. And then they would address that question to a specific ancestor or deity. Then they would heat the bone and watch it crack. And then sometimes once it cooled, they would add in an interpretation inscribed directly onto the bone. This wasn't always done. Probably sometimes it was just reported orally to the king or an official, but sometimes it was written on the bone as a kind of record. And most of them also would be signed with the name of the diviner, so we can trace the careers of some of these divinatory professionals. And they would be inscribed with the name of the emperor. And it seems that almost half of them were produced during the reign of the king Wu Ding, who apparently was the most obsessed with this form of prognostication. Now, what's most remarkable about these oracle bones, or well, there are many things that are remarkable about them, but the first thing that struck scholars is that when they traced out the different kings who are inscribed in the bones, it basically confirmed the reigns and dates reported in the Shu Jing. So there is now strong archaeological corroboration confirming that that king list in that ancient chronicle is accurate. And other sites have also been found around what was the Shang Kingdom with other sorts of divination relics, such as on shells. And these different centers of divination in different towns or estates, it seems that they used different methods of interpretation and even different materials. And that suggests that the practice at the royal palace in Anyang was probably kept secret. Now, more publicly, the kings also orchestrated elaborate sacrifices and offerings, including of human captives, animals, and wine. These were dedicated usually to ancestral spirits or to gods representing nature principles, such as winds, rivers, or mountains. Or sometimes they were dedicated to the so-called high god, 
which was a sort of transcendent celestial god specifically associated with the North Star, the single point around which the heavens pivot. And it seems as if the kings of the Shang dynasty ruled largely by prestige and by their connection to the spirits, gods, and ancestors. There is no evidence of systematic record-keeping or of any sort of bureaucratic administration. A few titles like chief scribe or superintendent appeared briefly very late towards the end of the dynasty, and it also does not appear as if they accumulated or amassed any great military strength. And hence it is not surprising that ultimately the Shang dynasty also fell very quickly. So according to the old chronicles that we've mentioned before, the last Shang ruler was also very cruel and decadent, much like Jia, the last Xiao ruler, had been before. And he was infamous also because his concubine reportedly liked to torture critics of the crown with fire and red-hot metal rods. So opposition and resistance to Shang rule grew during this last reign period, and the king began to imprison many suspected traitors. And among them was a man named Chang, who was the chieftain or archer lord of the western province called Zhou. And Zhou, it seems, was probably centered in the Wei Valley, west of Anyang, sort of at the far upper reaches of the river valleys. And Chang was reportedly the scion of a long dynasty of lords in Zhou, which traced all the way back to an ancestor who had served in the Xia court, but who had quit due to disgust at the corruption of the court and went west to live among the barbarians. And this story provides an origin myth for the Zhou as a sort of borderland people who were blended part Shang and part barbarian. And it also aligns with the gradually developing idea as mentioned before, that virtue and probity entitle a usurper to seize power. So it casts the, the Zhou lords as sort of specially principled, and hence why they were withdrawn far to the west. So Chang is imprisoned under this last Shang emperor, but he is found innocent, he gets out of prison, and he becomes a reformer. For instance, he ends the practices of burning and roasting, and it seems that around this time, mores were changing, and more and more torture, capital punishment, and human sacrifice are going out of favor, and this story of the Zhou associates them with that change. Around 1100 BC, Chang's son, named Wu Wang, launched a rebellion and attacked and sacked Anyang. And the exact date of this rebellion is unclear. But it's possible that the Zhou may have benefited from certain skills that they had gained from their base in the highlands, such as horsemanship. And the fight and the power struggle then continued after Wu Wang died and his younger brother Dan took over leadership until in exactly the year 1059 BC, and we know this because of the reference to astronomical events, in 1059 BC, the leader of the Zhou openly proclaimed his kingship and declared himself to be the rightful ruler of the kingdom. And we know this because it was the date when all five planets 
in the visible solar system all conjoined in a small section of the northwest sky. So this Joe Leader Wen probably saw this astronomical conjunction as a turning point, the completion of a cycle, or literally you could say a revolution, and hence he saw it as an opportune moment for a changeover in power. So he takes up this title as supposedly rightful king of the Middle Kingdom. But he died in 1049, and his successor, Wu, then attacked the Shang again, trying to finally overthrow them and achieve a final victory. And four years later, in 1045 BC, he captured Anyang after a long battle, and the Shang king retreated to a country palace where he then self-immolated rather than surrender. Nonetheless, Wu was reportedly clement, and he granted a fief or country estate to one of the Shang princes so that he could continue making the ancestral sacrifices. So even as he claimed the kingship for himself, this first Zhou ruler still in some way respected and valued this system of sacrifices and offerings to the Shang ancestors. So this first Zhou king named Wu claimed legitimacy from divine backing, or what we now call the Mandate of Heaven. And an early chronicle records and quotes Wu as saying, quote, Unpitying heaven sent down ruin upon the Shang. Yin has lost its mandate to rule, which our house of Zhou has received. So again, this sort of completion of a cycle and the transfer of divine support as embodied by, by heaven or this heavenly principle, it's been transferred from Shang to Zhou. So although the Zhou coming from those far western uplands, although they were less learned and refined than the Shang had been, nonetheless they retained the core of scribes that had been serving the Shang, and they expanded scholarship and learning. They were able to quickly catch up and master bronze casting and other art forms, and they brought in innovations and new styles, such as the use of more graceful curves and circular forms in bronze work. They built up several large cities in the Wei Valley, in the uplands west of Anyang, which had been their sort of ancestral homeland. And in order to manage this growing kingdom, they created a complex, stratified, but decentralized system of power. So territories and special powers were parceled out mainly to relatives of the king in sort of land grants called fengjian, which included the right to demand uh, money and labor from the local peasantry. These delegated lords were expected to help maintain the kingdom and to defend the capital, and they could impose, again, corvée labor demands and taxes upon the peasants, but not slavery. And the regional rulers gradually, over the generations, became more rooted in and intermarried with the local gentry. And this gradually gave rise to a very stratified nobility of local and regional lords. And these nobles and gentry were grouped into extended clans, each of which had a surname. So this was the first appearance of surnames in the Middle Kingdom. And these clans were then subdivided into smaller lineages, or sort of patrilineal families, each of which had its own properties, held by a male head of the lineage, and passed down by primogeniture. So this basic social system has sometimes been called feudal or feudalism, 
due to its perceived similarity to medieval Europe. But this analogy between Zhou-era China and medieval Europe is very controversial and has been called into question for one reason, because the very notion that there is this unified standard feudal system that was used in Europe is accurate, or that it captures how medieval society really worked. And so it may be more accurate just to say in a general way that society was decentralized and that power tended to be hereditary, with hereditary estates and titles. But nonetheless, what brought these various upper elites, the sort of lords and high-ranking nobles, what brought them together and kept them loyal to the ruling dynasty was their shared lineage tracing back to the earliest Zhou kings. There was still that kinship connection. And military actions and other services were always in some way marked by ceremonial offerings at royal temples dedicated to the ancestors. Meanwhile, other clans and lineages that were not royal, it seems, had parallel practices. Maybe they mimicked the royal practices, or maybe they were just came from a common background, but they also made their own offerings to ancestors at shrines, temples, home altars. And later Chinese scholars, if we go to later centuries, they tended to look back upon the Zhou as a sort of golden age, almost utopian. It embodied certain ideals that came to be highly valued in later centuries, ideals of harmony and balance. The Zhou also sought a tremendous spread of literacy. So rather than just being the preserve of a small priestly caste, all sorts of people in society began to read and to make inscriptions and documents and this then made bureaucratic government possible. The Zhou created for the first time a civil ministry with three departments and a military organized into six permanent armies with civilian managers. The officials of this bureaucracy were appointed and promoted based on a mixture of birth lineage and performance. So it wasn't entirely inherited, it wasn't entirely meritocratic, but both factors came into play. And these officials were installed ceremonially, and there are many surviving appointment documents, sort of proclamations appointing a person to a government office, which were then inscribed onto bronze vessels or other objects. And one of these surviving vessels explicitly invokes the sort of ideals of the Zhou regime. It invokes filial piety and prays for peaceful harmony, pure blessings, pervading wealth, and eternal mandate. Right, a reference back to that idea that rulers hold their power by the mandate of heaven. Nonetheless, after about 900 BC, there are records of increasing warfare along the eastern and western frontiers, and then there are signs after about 800 BC of great pressure from hostile barbarians pressing in from the south and the west. And because these outer areas were becoming more insecure, the kings could no longer give out, parcel out large land grants to their supporters. And furthermore, there were occasional attacks that could penetrate into the borders of the kingdom. So it seems that there was a migration of nomadic steppe peoples from the Central Asian steppes southward and eastward into the kingdom, leading to frequent conflict 
and also to trade and exchange. And so from graves of this later Zhou era, you can find items such as faience and carnelian that clearly were coming from Central Asia and even from India. But under this increasing pressure and running out of ways to reward and maintain the loyalty of the nobility around the kingdom, the dynasty finally fell in 771 BC. So reportedly, according to the chronicles, the king Yo repeatedly summoned the eastern lords to come and defend the capital against barbarians. But many of these were false alarms until there was this sort of boy crying wolf effect and finally the lords and armies failed to appear when summoned and hence the capital was sacked and the king Yo was killed. But archaeology and textual analysis has basically debunked this version of the story, and it seems more that there was a succession dispute and power struggle between two parties in the capital in the 770s BC, basically between supporters of King Yo and those of the young crown prince who had not yet come to the throne. And supporters of the crown prince withdrew, abandoned the capital, and removed to Luoyang in the east, which sort of became a rival capital. And this split and internal dissension then prompted barbarian hordes to invade, attack the capital, and kill the king. And the rival faction at Luoyang in the lowlands proclaimed the prince as the new king, but nonetheless the kingship was really reduced to only a ceremonial position. And the successors of Yo were really kings in name only. And rather the various local and regional states all around what had been the Zhou kingdom, were forced to defend themselves against these barbarian threats, and they took back effective power into their own hands. And this led to a long era of fragmentation and disunity, which lasted for 550 years, from 771 BC to 221 BC. And these five and a half centuries have generally been divided into two periods. So firstly, the so-called spring and autumn period, which saw by and large general peace and some cooperation among the regional states, and which lasted from 771 to 481 BC. And then after that, the warring states period, which is pretty self-explanatory and which dragged from 480 BC to the unification of the empire in 221 BC. So firstly, the spring and autumn period from 722 to 481 BC is called that because the main source we have for the events are the so-called Annals of Spring and Autumn, which are an official chronicle of events specifically in the state of Lu, one of these regional states that emerged from the breakdown of the Zhou. And the annals were later elaborated and commented upon in later years. But basically, it seems in the 700s BC, the elites largely fled eastward, away from the main areas of barbarian threat. And they established new states and capitals on the lowland plains and the coast. Lu was just one of them, located on the Yellow River. But the most powerful of them, at least at first, was Qi, which controlled the mouth of the Yellow River and the Shandong Peninsula, 
When the northern states were attacked by opponents from the steppes, then the Duke of Qi, named Huan, rallied to their defense and helped to fight off these threats. And in return, he called a conference where he demanded recognition from the other rulers as a sort of paramount lord. And it seems that they used a term that has been translated as hegemon or prince. And so this period of the so-called hegemony, there was an attempt to maintain a balance of power among the states and to allow for concentration of military forces on fighting the barbarians. But this leadership, the hegemony, rotated among different powerful leaders through the 600s and 500s BC. Now, Juan, the first hegemon, he also set a precedent by supporting scholars and learning. And there was a growth and flourishing of literature of all kinds. The minor states, in their different ways, supported scholars and writers. And for instance, the Wu state in the south employed Sun Tzu, who wrote the famous Art of War. Now, in addition to scholars and intellectuals, there also was a contest among the states for peasants to produce food, for artisans, and for technicians and engineers. And there was a sort of continuing quest to extract more labor and resources directly from the populace. And in order to do this, the rulers had to compete with different centers of power and loyalty. So they competed against the local and minor nobles and against the major family lineages and clans. And the rulers attempted to secure the right to collect taxes, to demand corvée labor and military service directly from the peasantry. And they had to seize these powers from the nobility and other institutions. And increasingly, these states followed a trend of dividing their territories into smaller units called shuan, or counties, which were then run by royally appointed administrators with the power to collect taxes directly. And the large feudal land holdings more and more were broken up in favor of smaller private holdings, and tax policies were set in such a way as to push the big households to break up and spread out. So ultimately, most of the land came to be worked by small, single-family households with fewer than 10 people on small plots averaging about five acres each. And these small families and households were recognized more and more as the building blocks of society. So this basic social system took shape in the later spring and autumn period, but over time, it made it possible, in a sort of prisoner's dilemma type situation, it made it possible for more of these states to build up greater military power and to take more aggressive postures. So in the 5 and 400s BC, competition between the states intensified as bigger fish increasingly gobbled up smaller fish and extended their territories and their tax bases. This gave way more and more to a territory race and then an arms race. And the number of regional states plummeted from 70 at the beginning of the spring and autumn period down to about 24 by 481 BC when the warring states period is considered to begin and then further diminished to only seven by the 200s BC. And these growing domains were redefined 
from networks of towns that happen to be loyal to a certain ruler to instead territorial zones with definite borders, sometimes militarized. And some of these states even built walls right across the middle of plains to defend these hostile borders. The regimes were more and more bureaucratized with even more trained officials reporting usually to a superintendent or a chancellor to make reports and censuses, manage treasuries and armies, and the warfare more and more involved mobilization of large numbers of peasant soldiers rather than being a more aristocratic pursuit like it had been in the spring and autumn period. So these remaining states were bigger, stronger, much harder to conquer. There was a kind of continuing standoff. They've been described as, quote, seven killing machines by the historian Li Feng. And this situation effectively lowered the stakes to entering competitive wars. When territories were bigger and better secured, the rulers could be more aggressive in initiating conflicts, and the hegemony system completely broke down. It could not keep peace or a balance of power. And there were frequent wars. At least 358 are recorded in the documents between the 500s and 200s BC. And there were rapidly, unpredictably shifting alliances and diplomatic entanglements. And naturally, by the end of the period, it began to seem that the only hope was for one state to achieve outright victory and establish control over all the others. And that would eventually happen, but we will leave that for now to later. Nonetheless, despite this instability, the Warring States period did continue a lot of the evolution and advances that had started earlier in the spring and autumn period. So technologically speaking, there was a great advance in agriculture with more sophisticated irrigation and the invention of wet rice cultivation. So that's a complex system of hydraulics to manage controlled flooding of fields which massively increases the productivity of rice per acre. And this technique began in the subtropical lands around the Yangtze, which frequently flooded naturally anyway. But it was found to be so productive that it spread north, and wet rice started to displace millet as the main crop even in the north. And it required a skilled peasant workforce. Then also as for writing, writing, as we said, first developed among the Shang, and it was basically rooted in pictographic representation. But over time through the Zhou and the spring and autumn and warring states period, different local and regional writing systems emerged, sort of like regional dialects, and these were gradually consolidated into bigger and bigger scripts and vocabularies of thousands of words. There also were efforts to standardize and pare back this sort of exploding vocabulary, but nonetheless there were thousands of them which allowed for very fine communication. Also in metalworking, bronze working was already very sophisticated, it spread into new areas, and then finally iron was adopted. But the adoption of ironworking was much slower than bronze had been. And it seems that the first small iron objects appeared in the Shang era, and they were made from meteorites, which is not uncommon in many parts of the world that don't have a lot of iron deposits. They use meteor iron. And only later in the spring and autumn period does it seem that craftsmen started smelting iron, which has a much higher melting point than copper or tin. And around 100 iron objects have been found from the spring and autumn period. 
And even at this point, bronze was still seen as the proper material to warfare. And Prince Juan, the first hegemon, is quoted in Chronicles as saying, quote, The lovely metal, meaning bronze, is used for casting swords and pikes. It is used in the company of dogs and horses. The ugly metal, which is iron, is used for casting hoes, which flatten weeds and axes, which fell trees. It is used upon the fruitful earth. So this quote fits with the overarching ideology of balance and harmony, where each thing plays its proper role in the cosmos and in nature. So iron was not adopted quickly in warfare or weaponry, but its use in agriculture also increased the productivity of farming. And this made it easy then for peasants with their iron and steel tools, like plowshares, to fill their quotas very easily and to produce surpluses for their own use or to sell in trade. So only later in the Warring States period, when there was a sort of military frenzy, only then did iron begin to play into warfare. And first it was used to add weights to arrows and shafts and for axes. Then it was made into steel blades and into increasingly strong and sophisticated crossbow firing mechanisms. So therefore, by the end of the Warring States period, those who had access to iron and could exploit it got a tremendous advantage. Now, with all of these changes and developments, nonetheless, a fairly clear and somewhat consistent social structure and class structure developed across these Warring States. And the society tended to have four strata called the Shi, the Shang, the Kung, and the Nung, which can be compared then to social stratification systems in other societies, like, again, like we mentioned in medieval Europe with the three estates. So there you have the clergy, the nobility, and the commoners, a sort of priestly class, a warrior class, and then everybody else, the laborers of different sorts. In India, traditionally, there are the four verna. So in that case, you it's similar, but there's a new distinction introduced. You have the Brahmins, the priestly class, the Kshatriya, the ruling and warrior class, the Vaishya, the merchant and artisan class, and then the Shudra, the peasants. So in that case, they make a distinction between the artisanal class and the peasantry. Well, in China, in the spring and autumn and warring states eras, you have firstly the Shi, which are scholars and officials. And this group emerges first from the sort of priest scribes of the Shang dynasty, and then it grows tremendously with the rise of literacy and administration in the Zhou period. And many nobles, and especially younger sons of minor noble houses, learned literacy and moved into government careers. And then in the era of fragmentation, it's then joined by many newcomers, especially a lot of commoners of obscure birth, and states began to recruit aggressively in order to staff and run their bureaucracies, especially these new county governments. So you have a sort of scribal and official class. Then you have the Shang, which is the mercantile class. As I mentioned before, Shang can just mean merchant. And these also were seen as valuable to the state and to the prosperity and strength of the state, but as necessarily lower status than the Shi. And so there were rules and customs that tried to limit the rise and power of the Shang and to prevent them from gaining status beyond their 
proper station. So naturally, it was the aspiration of many Shang to themselves or to have their children join the Shi class. Then next you have the Kung, the artisans, who are seen as lower status, but could still be prosperous and have some basic degree of prestige. And then finally the Nung, which is the commoners, or more specifically, the peasantry. And this was, of course, the biggest class, obviously, and it was very important. So with the breakup of the noble estates, most of the peasants were then free to move around. And in times of peace, they had fairly little or light obligations, maybe sometimes labor service, sometimes taxes, but they tended to be manageable. Some of the people used their freedom of movement to go into the towns and to become so-called guaren or town folk. There has never been any significant population of slaves in China. So, you know, if you if you look at kind of orthodox Marxist te- texts, they cast slavery as kind of the basic economic bedrock of ancient civilizations. And they're thinking of, you know, Egypt, Mesopotamia. But it didn't happen the same way in China. There was no significant enslaved class. And the peasants had comparatively higher status there than in other contemporary civilizations, especially contemporary hydraulic civilizations like Egypt. Why is that? Well, it seems that the reasons are partly technological. So while iron was slowly adopted into weaponry, there was never steel armor in ancient China. And so that meant that there wasn't a tremendous military advantage for the mounted nobles as against the peasantry. And if the peasantry lived, as most of them did, in walled compounds or villages or towns, and they could have crossbows and were trained in the use of crossbows for warfare, then they could really present serious opposition and a serious challenge, even to the best warriors on horseback. And what that means is that they could, when needed, hold their own, and they weren't completely subjugated by the the rulers or the upper classes, as could happen in other societies. Rebellions did happen sometimes when peasants felt that their freedoms and prerogatives were being violated. And it seems that the general sort of ethos of the era had a basic respect for the ordinary folk. They could even have a sort of sentimental view of the peasantry. The peasant families and clans were seen as fundamental to the social fabric. It seems by this time the public started to... the the general populace started to be referred to as, quote, the 100 families, since there sprang up roughly about 100 common surnames that were widespread all around China. They were called the 100 families, and sometimes even in later eras, when people from the, the folk, the general public, made petitions and representations to the state, they would refer to themselves as, quote, we of the 100 names, as a sort of way of designating the folk, the bedrock of the country. So by the end of the Warring States period, there was a great variety of philosophical and intellectual ideas. There was a ferment, even in this time of warfare and violence. And there was contention among many different schools of thought. And this era has sometimes been called the Hundred Schools of Thought era. 
And I won't get deeply into these because I really have to save that for a whole other lecture. How did Chinese philosophy, intellectual life, spirituality develop? But you probably have heard of some of the leading lights that came up in the spring and autumn and warring states period. One, of course, is Confucius, who it seems most likely lived towards the end of the spring and autumn period, just as that balance of power was starting to break down. And he and his followers tried to codify the sort of broadly accepted social philosophy and ideals of the era, emphasizing the importance of institutions, of ceremonies, of proper etiquette as a way of trying to maintain peace and harmony, both among states and even more so within societies. Then competing with Confucius and his followers, there was Lao Tzu, who as a person is more mysterious. He may have been contemporary with Confucius, that's what some early texts claim, or maybe he might have lived a bit later in the Warring States period, but we know that he wrote a famous book called the Tao Te Ching, which put forward also a philosophy of harmony and balance, but rooted more in metaphysics and cosmology and in the old principles of yin and yang, the balance of contending principles. Both of these schools of thought, the Confucian and the Taoist, as Lao Tzu's school was called, both of these are anti-authoritarian, but they came to be challenged then by another competing school, which was authoritarian, disciplinarian, and you could say sort of Machiavellian. This school has been called legalism, and it arose under the auspices of the Qin state in the far northwest. So as we mentioned earlier, at the beginning of the spring and autumn period, there was an array of different regional powers, but the strongest one really was the Qi state in the east on the Pacific coast. But over time, they started to be challenged and overtaken by a very different power in the far northwest called Qin. And the Qin did not have the advantages of extensive plains or seacoast, but they did have a defensible position. And there is evidence, such as gold objects in some graves and archaeological sites, it seems that they had extensive contact with the nomadic and semi-nomadic horsemen of Central Asia. And some of them, it seems, actually made incursions and then settled in Chin, and they probably brought with them equestrian skills. And the Qin were, it seems, looked down upon by the eastern Chinese on the eastern plains, but they were respected for their military power. And the Qin saw themselves as peacekeepers who could harmonize and stabilize not only the Middle Kingdom, but the Middle Kingdom and the barbarians. They, were, they sort of straddled this line. And they too claimed the mandate of heaven alongside the Zhou dynasts, who were still technically, nominally ruling from Luoyang. So at the beginning of the Warring States period, Qi seems to be the most powerful, but then Qin gradually pulled even, using several strategies. For one, aggressive governmental reorganization. So the Qin were the most effective at reorganizing and centralizing their state, The big noble houses were rendered impotent. All power was consolidated at the royal court. 
feudal holdings were abolished, and those nobles who still existed, who had very little political power, were forced to live at the court under the watchful eye of Qin. So if you know about, say, Louis XIV in Versailles, it should sound very familiar. In the 300s BC, the Duke Xiao of Qin took on a scholar named Shang Yang as his chancellor and instructed him to further reform the government and the legal system. So under Shang Yang as chancellor, the territories were broken into counties and smaller districts and even further into small units of just five households each. And each five-family cluster had a single head, who was then held responsible and liable for any crimes that anyone in that group might commit. And the punishments for crime against both perpetrators and the leaders of these family groups could be very brutal and draconian, but the standard was understood to be consistent for all. So the people of different classes are being put on the same level, subject to the often harsh enforcement of royal authority. Everyone in society was gradually ranked, almost like a military unit, with ranks given out mainly for deeds in warfare. And Shangyang implemented these aggressive reforms until he himself was accused of treason and killed. But by that time, the transformation had really already happened, and the Qin had militarized society to the point that Easterners sometimes referred to it derisively as, quote, the state of tigers and wolves. Furthermore, military strategies. In the late 300s BC, the Qin was able to undermine and conquer a rival state to the west. So this was the first real conquest of a power from China onto the steppes. Also to the south of Qin, there were two small competing rival states in the Zichuan Basin, in that area that also is the site of Sanxingdui from earlier era. But there were these two rival states which went to war with one another, and both of them then appealed to the Qin for help for an alliance. Well, rather than allying with one or the other, the Qin instead took advantage of this conflict. They marched south through the mountains and conquered both of them. And then after occupying the entire basin, they moved in 10,000 families in order to colonize the region and begin exploiting the iron supplies. So this was valuable to them because this is where there were iron deposits that could feed into the blacksmith workshops to produce better steel weapons for their fighters. Also, according to the ancient chronicles, the Qin brought canals and hydraulic management and irrigation into Sichuan, thus increasing the productivity and, to some degree at least, buying the loyalty of the people of the Sichuan Basin. So by the middle of the 200s BC, it was clear, at least to some, that the Qin were ready to strike out for military dominance. And in 247 BC, a new Duke of Qin came to power, who was named Ying Zheng, who was only at that time 13 years old. But nonetheless, he was determined to capitalize upon Qin's advantages, and it was apparent to people both inside and outside the state that if any of the states had a chance of unifying all of what had been the Middle Kingdom, it was Qin. 
So Duke Yingzheng kept the capital at Xi'an, the traditional main city in the northwest, which was an advantageous position because their forces could potentially sweep down the river valley onto the coastal plain in order to fight opponents or suppress resistance, but also could then retreat back into the high Wei Valley when needed. And from this position, Yingjing wanted, he started to plan to defeat two continuing threats. One was the resistance and hostility of old powers to the east, and the other was a large barbarian confederation called the Xiongnu on the steppes to the north. So his court was largely run in the early years by a grand chancellor and his allies, who sort of acted as regents for the young duke. But eventually, Ying Zheng, in 235 BC, forced the chancellor out of office and forced him to commit suicide. And he then took effective control of the government into his own hands at age 24. He then implements further standardization in the state of the writing system, the weights and measures, and significantly of wheel sizes and wheel axles to make for easier transport and transshipment along the roads. So in all of these ways, he's preparing for the communication, the trade, and the conquest of a larger domain. He replaced all the palace officials with strict legalists, including significantly he appointed his longtime admirer, Wei Liao, into the post of commandant, a sort of hybrid military-civilian office. And the records of the grand historian quote Wei Lian as saying about his appointment and about the new ruler, quote, He seldom extends favor and has the heart of a tiger or wolf. When in straits, he can submit to others, but when he has his way, he can easily eat you alive. I am a commoner. Nevertheless, when he received me, he always humbles himself before me. Once he really has his way in the world, the whole world will be held captive by him. So Ying Zheng's authoritarian rule, his imposition of legalism, and his reforms gave rise to a lot of political discontent. The discontent was strong for one thing among the old nobility, which was supplanted by these new administrators, and also by the traditional scholars, or shi, who had been trained in the old, more feudal-style laws, and not in this new legalistic school. So Yingjing and his administrators worried about the threat of a possible alliance against the court, an alliance of nobles and scholars. And so to head this off, he banned all philosophical schools other than the legalists and ordered massive burnings of all books, except those on agriculture, medicine, and divination, which he saw as legitimately useful. In 230 BC, the campaign to reunify the Middle Kingdom was launched. The armies of Qin quickly defeated and occupied two smaller nearby states, and then the ruler of the third state that they targeted called for a parley with Yingzheng. He needed some sort of stalling tactic. So he called a parley and then attempted to assassinate Yingzheng by stabbing him with a poisoned sword. But this failed, and he was able to survive and kill this enemy as well. So the Qin advance continued. 
In 225 BC, Qin forces defeated the state of Wei on the Yellow River by breaking the dikes and flooding the capital. So now he's extending his rule down into the eastern plains. He then turned south and defeated the state of Chu on the Yangtze River, and he surrounded the remaining enemy army and forced the commander to commit suicide. In 221 BC, Qin attacked and conquered the Qi on the seacoast, which was the last significant holdout state and their ancient rival. So now, having subdued that last serious opponent, Yingzheng took up direct rule of the entire newly created empire, which was bigger, richer, more populous than the Middle Kingdom had ever been before under any previous dynasty. And he began governing on the centralized model that had been established within Qin. It was extended out to this new empire. He applied Shangyang's standards of weights and measures and standardized writing system, and he declared a new Qin dynasty, and he titled himself Qin Shi Huangde, which is translated as the first Qin emperor. And of course, emperor is, is an English word from Latin, but this title Shi Huangde has overtones both of rulership and kingship and also of divinity. He was casting himself as kind of a divine, heavenly figure. And because he took up the name of his ancestral dynasty, Qin, this new empire, henceforth came to be known as China. That's where our name China comes from. So Qin did not rest on his laurels, but he quickly capitalized on this new tremendous base of power, and he subjugated more lands to the south and to the northeast. He quickly built a network of paved roads for transport, especially of troops and also of goods around the new domain, and he set up a system of 36 commanderies around the border and periphery of the empire, which each of which would use local resources to maintain the outer defenses. And then, of course, he turned back to that old threat, the Xiongnu, which hadn't been entirely eliminated. And in 214 BC, he ordered the building of a chain of fortresses linked together by long walls, which could block or impede cavalry invasions from the steppes. And in order to build this first great wall, he used massive corvée labor forces of peasants, which were sent up to work in the mountains and deserts. And this caused tremendous suffering and discontent, and eventually fueled waves of peasant rebellions that broke out after the emperor's death. Meanwhile, as for securing the south, he encouraged southward migration of people from the core area of the empire, this zone of increasingly similar customs and language, people who have in later years come to be called Han Chinese. He encouraged southward migration of these Han Chinese, and his forces fought and defeated significantly the kingdom of Fujian in the far southeast, in this mountainous southeastern corner, which held out. So he defeated Fujian and then built the so-called Magic Canal, an enormous long canal linking the Yangtze River with the Pearl River system all the way down on the South China Sea. So this new domain has grown and it has developed internally with incredible lightning speed under the direction of this visionary authoritarian ruler. The emperor was also extremely secretive. 
He lived in many secret bunkers and remote shelters, some of which were reportedly connected by tunnels. He was almost never seen publicly, and so in his seclusion he took on the airs of a kind of god or deity. And he began from very early on to plan out a tremendous underground mausoleum complex to memorialize himself and to continue his, his rulership and the servitude of his subjugated masses in the afterlife. And I've discussed this mausoleum complex and the tremendous terracotta army defending it in an installment of Doorways in Time. So I'll put the link to that in the description. But after much anticipation, the emperor did die in 210 BC. And as I said, enormous discontent at the harsh discipline and the long terms of forced labor had been building up. And the administrators around the royal palace were very afraid of what would happen when people found out that this supposedly divine ruler had actually died. And they kept the death secret for a long time, fearing rebellion and chaos. But as word got out, nonetheless, revolts broke out among regional nobles, among peasants, and also among opportunistic bandits. So in a panic, the palace staff declared the emperor's younger son as the second emperor, but they couldn't maintain control of the empire. And internal wars and revolts went on for about eight years until 202 BC, when the short-lived dynasty was then overthrown by a band under the leadership of a man named Liu Bang. Now, Liu Bang is an obscure man. It seems he was illiterate. He may have started off life as a peasant or a peasant soldier. But regardless of who he was or exactly where he came from, he took control of a band of fugitive rebels, basically soldiers and workers who had been subject to tremendous harsh discipline and who, if they even deviated from their orders a tiny bit, were afraid of torture or execution, and who then were, in a sense, forced into a hostile posture against the Qin state. So Liu Bang took control of one of these bands of fugitive rebels who then gradually absorbed more rebellious groups and built up support until they could seize the government. They then declared Liu Bang as emperor and he founded the so-called Han dynasty. And once in power, Liu Bang sought some sort of compromise. He sought to mollify the nobles by once again giving out fiefs and estates and restoring some of the privileges and powers that had been taken away from them by Qin. But nonetheless, these fiefs and estates were still relatively small, and they were still subject to the authority of imperial governors and administrators. And so in this way, you can see that right from the beginning, this new Han dynasty was trying to restore a sort of balance and work out a set of compromises to restore harmony and internal peace to this massive empire whose foundations had been laid by Qin. So I will leave off there and hopefully down the road, I'll discuss further the development of this new China under Han control, and the intellectual and philosophical traditions that had emerged 
in the spring and autumn period, the Warring States period, that now found new audiences and contributed to the coalescing of a Chinese worldview and a Chinese intellectual tradition from the Han Dynasty before then the introduction of a whole new philosophy from new civilizations like India that China had never contacted before. So a great deal happens, many stories come to their fulfillment, and many new stories begin in the Han Dynasty. But I will leave that off for another time. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to hear more, particularly my patron-only materials, please go follow the link to Patreon and become a supporter at any level, even if it's just a dollar. Thank you.